welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Manu Kumar is the founder of K9 Ventures, one of the first pre-seed focused funds based in Palo Alto, California. Manu was the first investor in companies like Lyft, Carta, Twilio, Crowdflower, and many more. Previous to K9, Manu received his PhD in computer science from Stanford University, where he still occasionally teaches, and before that, his master's in computer science at Carnegie Mellon University. Earlier in his career, he was the president and CEO of Sneaker Labs, which he successfully sold to Octane Software in 2000. Manu, thank you so much for doing this with me. My pleasure. Good to be here, Nick. Um, Back in San Francisco for the second time this month. It's a wild anomaly, (laughs) but um, I'm glad we made this work. Um, could you tell us to start just a little bit about your background and um, and also your time at, at, at Carnegie Mellon? Sure. Um, I actually grew up in New Delhi in India. Okay. Um, came to uh, the States uh, to go to college at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, it was my first time out of India. Um, wow. F- landed in Pittsburgh and started school. Right. And so, yeah, so I spent... Was Pittsburgh uh, as glorious as you expected? Pittsburgh was actually pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Other than the winters, the rest of it was actually pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I had a good time over there. I spent 10 years in Pittsburgh. Right. Um, you did undergrad and... I did undergrad, so I did a bachelor's in electrical and computer engineering, yeah. uh, which I finished in three years, and then went on to do a master's uh, for another two years. Yep. Um, and then started my first company in Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. um, built that. And um, yeah, actually ended up doing two startups uh, based out of Pittsburgh. And that was, what was the first one? So the first company was called Sneaker Labs. Right. And we were doing... How did you come come to that name? Oh, so my my handle at CMU was Sneaker. Okay, got it. (laughs) I'm I'm Sneaker on the webs. (laughs) Got it, okay. And so, yeah, so it was Sneaker Labs as a company. And um, And you were still in school when you started that? Yeah, I was still in school. I was still doing my master's when I started that. Um, This was late 90s? This is um, late 1996. Okay. So, yeah. So, still pretty early internet. That's right. It was an internet company. That's right. Yeah, it was an internet company. We were doing pre-sales customer service, uh, which essentially Mm. if you... Today, if you go on the web and you see a little pop-up window that says, hi, can I help you? Yep. You can blame me for it. 
Really? So God. Um, I actually wrote the patent for that. Okay, <laughs> you're the worst. No. Um, okay. That's amazing. So Okay, and, and so where did that... How did that, where did that idea come from? How did, what, did you have any idea of like how to start a startup at that time or other people doing it? No. So it was, um, so I always knew I would do my own company. It was just a question of okay. when rather Why? than if. Why did you always know that? Um, it was just, it was just in me. Like I, hmm. like even in high school, like I actually wrote software and we were selling, hmm. so we were trying to sell the software in high school. Okay. Um, so okay. I just knew that I was going to do my yeah. own company at some point. It was just a question of when and what the right idea was. Um, when Java came out in uh, 1995, 96, I ended up building um, a chat server um, on the little machine sitting under my desk at CMU. Hmm. Uh, ended up with about 20,000 people using that on hmm. a concurrent basis. Um, Largely in the university? Uh, no, like all oh, wow. across the U.S., okay. all okay. across the globe. Wow. Um, and that's kind of what uh, sparked me like, okay, there might be a company in this. Hmm. And that's what got me to actually start a company. Uh, we started out doing chat servers early on, but then moved into doing uh, pre-sales customer service uh, and web conferencing. Um, did you raise so, capital for that company? Uh, I mean, not, you, you, you did, and, and did you start it with other, I guess, friends or students? No, I started it all by myself. Okay. Um, I actually tried to recruit several of my friends to join me, hmm. uh, and I learned a valuable lesson that it's hard to convince friends to come join you. Hmm. Um, <laughs> Why? And I think it's uh, it's it's easy to become friends with people you work with but difficult to work with people you are friends right. with. Yeah. So so that was a that was a valuable yeah. uh insight. Um and yeah, so I started the company in late ninety-six. Um and uh, we ended up doing pre-sales customer service and we grew to about twenty people in, in Pittsburgh. So mm. um, yeah. And did you ever raise capital for the company? Oh, sorry, I forgot to answer that. Um, um, so for the first uh, two years, no, because I actually started when I was on a student visa. And so I had a very short window of time for which I could even stay in the United <laughs> States. Wow. Uh, so I first had to resolve the visa issues. Right. And, um, and as soon as I'd resolved the visa issues, then I did raise capital okay. and raised about a million, um, million dollars uh, in Pittsburgh. For and how did you do that? So, like where, who did you go to? Was that? Was, did you have a concept of venture capital at that um, time? Did not have any concept right. of venture capital at that right. time. It was more of just like just kind of poking around and figuring things mm. out. And in fact, the people I raised capital from are, were not venture capitalists. They were right. okay. they were individuals and yeah. effectively what you, we would today call angels. And um, it was a series of serendipitous things that led me to that. Right. So in in my attempt to recruit people, I started the Pittsburgh Java Users Group. Hmm. Uh, one of the people who showed up there was a professor. One of his friends was somebody who's who's uh, an in potential investor. So he introduced me, and that's how we got to talking. And um, they agreed to fund the company. So it was uh, it was a series of lucky events, is how I would put it. And so, was that the only capital you raised? Is that was the only, only capital wow. we raised. Yes. Yeah. Raising capital in Pittsburgh. Was not easy. Yeah, I can so, imagine. Yes, and and then you ultimately sold the company. Yes, yeah, so we uh, grew the company about twenty people. Yep. Had great product. Um, fast forward about uh, four years to like uh, late ninety nine, early two thousand. I came out west to go talk to several different companies, um, about six of them, 
and literally went back with six different offers to wow. either invest or acquire the company. Wow. And so we proceeded with uh, two of those offers. One of them uh, essentially said, we're sending you a term sheet. You have three hours to decide. Wow. If your answer is yes, then we're flying a team out to do diligence. If your answer is no, then we're filing for our IPO next week. Wow. The other one... Uh, to compete with you? No, no, no. Like okay. They were already on their way to going public. Got it. Yes, so they yes. were just like, look, just if like, you don't say yes in yes. the next three hours, we just don't have the time yes, for going exactly. public. Got right. it. Wow. Um, but we turned that one down and uh, we went. We decided to do get acquired by a company called Octane Software, which is in San Mateo. And literally on the Friday before um, we were supposed to close this deal on Monday, on the Friday I got a call from their CFO saying, hey, we can't wait till Monday, we need to close this on Friday. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, well, we're getting acquired. Oh my God. So yeah, so uh, my company, Sneaker Labs, got acquired by Octane on mon- on Monday. Did you think about walking? I mean, give, just given the fact that you knew nothing about the new acquiring company that you were going to go work for? I think by that time, we were too far down the line uh, that walking would not have been a good option. Mm -hmm. And to credit uh, Tim Guleri, who's now a partner at Sierra Ventures, like he's phenomenal. Uh, He was the person I was talking to at Octane. He was a co-founder of Octane. And uh, yeah, to his credit, like even though they were getting acquired, they still went through with our acquisition Mm. as well. Right. And uh, yeah, so we went from being 20 people on Monday to being part of a 200-person private company on Tuesday to being part of an 800-person public company wow. on Wednesday. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and that's what brought you out to Silicon Valley? No, I actually stayed in Pittsburgh through okay. that as well. Uh, what brought me out here was Stanford. Okay. Um, so once I had done uh, startups for five years, been at CMU for five years. I felt that I was kind of burnt out at that point. Yeah. Um, and just needed a, needed to take some time off and I decided to go back to school. Hmm. So I went back to Stanford for school. And what did you do? Uh, I did a PhD in computer science. Okay. Wow. Were there a lot of other, I assume you were somewhat unusual I was in that the you were only a successful founder before. Like that. Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. the typical uh, the the typical person coming into the PhD program has gone through undergrad degree and they're coming directly into the the PhD right. program with the idea of, I guess, potentially being an academic. Right. You know? Yeah. And so, yeah. For, so it was very unusual for me to kind of come back to school after right. having done a couple of companies, but um, I just kind of um, I decided that. Uh, I'm not the type of person to go hang out on a beach. Mm-hmm. So I want to mm-hmm. go hang out with smart people and I want to learn stuff. And I love my time at Stanford. Yeah. And I want to, I think, I think you, you teach at, you're a, you teach at Stanford today, I, correct? I teach uh, when I can. So I okay. teach a course uh, every other year or so, if I can get okay. around to it, I teach a course called uh, human computer interaction in the real world. Hmm. And it's mostly around, um, taking engineering, design, and product management, and kind of figuring out in the intersection of all of those, how does product actually get made? Hmm. That's cool. And that's a graduate class? Uh, it's uh, it's open to all. So it's oh. open to like undergrads and grads. But actually, I was supposed to teach it this year, but unfortunately, I just got slammed and couldn't teach it this year. So. That's cool. <laughs> when did you start Angel investing. I noticed on your profile that I, I think, from what I can tell, mm-hmm. you can correct me if I'm wrong, there's a few angel investments in there before you started K9, which we'll get to. Yeah, in so in fact, in um, 2000, right after I'd sold my first company, um, the folks who had invested in my company, they started sending me stuff to look at for diligence, for technical okay. diligence. And, um, and the first company I gave them a thumbs up on 
their reaction was like, well, how much are you going to put in? Huh. Um, okay. And, and, and you, of, hadn't, you had never considered I had never thought about right. it at that point. And that kind of put me on the spot that, hey, mm. if I'm giving a company a thumbs up, then right. maybe I need to think about it. Right. Uh, so the first one or two investments that I did were very passive, where I was not leading any investment. I was just kind of putting in a small small check alongside some other other folks. And I were really, those here in San Francisco? Those were actually or still, still in Pittsburgh. Silicon those okay. were still in Got Pittsburgh, it. yeah. Like I really got started in terms of investing, I would say in about 2008, 2009. Okay. Um, and that time, so after I finished my PhD, I decided that I wanted to uh, get into venture. Okay. And out of uh, Stanford. Out of Stanford. Rather yeah. than starting another company. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you and you hadn't. So it was just like a couple of those early angel investments, but you. That's right. It wasn't. You weren't. I, st- you know, I did not consider doing... myself to be an investor okay. or an angel at that got point. It. Right. Yeah, so that transition for me happened probably in 2009. So why why is that? I'm curious cuz you've you've done a few angel investments. Mm-hmm. You're interested in investing. I'm curious, you know, why maybe you chose not to invest in, in uh, those years. And maybe you're just time, maybe busy at school or Yeah, at that time I still hadn't made the transition for myself that I I was still in my heart I was and still am an entrepreneur. And so it kind of took me a while to kind of be like, oh, I can be an entrepreneur and be an investor at the same hmm. time. Um, so that was something I had to kind of craft and and get my head around uh, because otherwise I was totally thinking about what am I going to start next? That That's what my head was on. And, and did you view K9 as the combination of those things? Yeah, so K9 okay. is kind of the outcome of a lot of thinking around there where I realized that what I enjoy most is working with companies in their formative stages. From right. the zero to twenty is probably my sweet spot. Yeah, and then, but I will stay with companies even as they as they grow. Yeah, um, but in order for me to kind of be involved in the formative stages of the company, um, if I do my own startup. I would do it maybe for five years. And then after five years, I would be like, okay, now what do I do? Mm-hmm. And so K9 became my vehicle for being able to have a 30-year arc around what I want to do, mm. but at the same time be involved in companies at their earliest stages. So, so you you graduated Stanford uh, with a PhD in 2008? 2007. 2007. I guess you, you have now mentally committed mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. starting K9. Mm-hmm. Where where did you actually start? So the first call I made was actually to the same people who had funded my right. previous companies. Okay, yeah, um, that makes sense. And I told them I want to uh, start a venture fund. Yep. And they told me, if you want to start another company, we will give you a blank check. Mm-hmm. But how do we know you have what it takes to be an investor? Right. And so, and they told me, why don't you go and work at a venture fund for a couple of years? Is that something you consider? So I, I took that advice very seriously. And in 2008, I went up and down Sand Hill Road and talked to about kind of like the top 15 firms about potentially joining those firms. I, I realized a couple of things during that process, which is that if I were to go and join a, a firm in 2008 on Sand Hill, I would not get to do the type of investing I wanted to do. Right. Right. Just because they were investing, they were investing three to four million dollars in a Series A round, uh, much later stage company. That's not the type of investing I wanted to do. Like I want to be like there's 
two founders and maybe a dog. Yeah. Okay. And that's yeah. the stage at which I want to get involved with the Were company. Were any of them so, open to that? I mean, because obviously you fast forward 10 years and all those firms now are, I think, yeah, are I mean, none investing of, none all over the None of the, the Sand place, Hill but. firms were open to that yeah. in 2007, 2008. Yeah. I think the, the ones that I kind of hold up in high regard as kind of the folks who kind of paved the way for me would be Josh Koppelman at right. First Round, Mike Maples at Floodgate, um, uh, Michael Deering at Harrison Metal. Like the, the, these are the, and Steve Anderson at Baseline, right? Yep. I mean, so these are the folks that I kind of like look up to in terms of like they kind of set the, set the stage for me to even think about that, oh, I can actually go off and start a fund and especially do it as a solo GP. Right. Were they, uh, I guess they were maybe not Josh, but I guess, right, they were all pretty much solo GPs when they started. When too. they started, they, uh, well, uh, Steve Anderson and Michael Deering, I know, were. Uh, right. I'm not sure about first round. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess maybe they show you the, the path or that there is a different path. And and where did you go from there? So, yeah, so once... Did you uh, give those folks a ring back? I, I actually did. And you know what? <laughs> I, I still have the, the the image in my mind because I gave, I made that call while I was driving back from an interview on Sand Hill. Right. Right. And I'm on Sand Hill in the car driving yeah. back. And I told them, look, I know you told me to go work at a venture fund, but I've decided I'm not going to do that. And I'm just going to take my own money and I'm going to start investing. And when I said that, you. then they're like, well, then we're in. That's awesome. So, so that's how the first fund came about, yep. uh, where just I said, yes, I'm doing it. And then some of the folks jumped in on top of that. And it was mostly individuals. It was all high net worth individuals. Yep. Yes, that's right. And how big was the first fund? First fund was six and a quarter million. Okay. So, but actually, when the initial closing was at three million. Right. Uh, there was a second closing that got to, to six and a quarter, but initially just started with three million. And how did you think about the strategy for that first fund? Um, the strategy was I want to focus on technical founders. Um, that and that remains like a key uh, pillar of my strategy. Yeah. And I did not want to take a sector-based approach. I wanted to actually think about what form does something new happen in. And it can happen in either new technology, which mm-hmm. is the most common form of something new, or a new market. That's mm-hmm. the second most common form of something yeah. new. The third most common form of something new is a new business model, but that's extremely rare. So I decided I wanted to focus on new technology, new market, only on companies that have direct revenue. They're, like, they're building something, they I give it to you, you pay me. So direct revenue. And does that still main, and remain still, the case yes. today? All of, those, okay. all, of, all of these criteria still apply even till hmm. today. And, hmm. um, and then because I initially... Why, why the direct revenue piece? I'm curious about that. One, I have, uh, when I look at the two-person company that thinks they're going to actually build a massive business based on advertising, I have nothing to go on to know that, yes, these two people are actually going to be able to build Mm. the next Facebook or the next Mm. Twitter or something like that, right? Mm. And that's not my DNA. Mm -hmm. Uh, My DNA is more hardcore technology, so I will take bets on technology over... um, over predicting that, yes, something will work. Right. So could you talk about some mm-hmm. of those early days and maybe some of the teams you worked with and, and how you found sure. them and work with them? A lot of the initial investments were essentially coming out of my network at uh, Stanford and Carnegie Mellon. So I was essentially talking to folks who had done their PhDs at Stanford and or graduated from Stanford and talking to them about who was starting companies and trying to convince them to, um, to take my money. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I imagine was probably a little easier then than it is today, just because there were probably so few firms 
Indeed, doing what you were doing. it was a lot easier then than it is today right. because first the check size was a lot smaller. Yep. So it's a lot easier to write a 25-50k check as opposed to doing a half a million and leading the round, right? And is that what you were doing in the early days? So yeah, so like in the early days I started checks. out with like a 50k check at initial and then moved up to a 100k check after that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um so yeah, and so uh, one of the first companies I invested in was with uh, Lucas and Chris at Crowdflower, which is now called Figure Eight. That company is still going strong. Mm-hmm. Um, my uh, second investment ever was uh, was Twilio, uh, which was very That'll lucky. Work. Yeah, very lucky. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and, um, I just happened to end up sitting next to Evan at a dinner event, and my previous company was doing web conferencing and audio conferencing. Right. So I knew what a pain it was for me to find a half a million dollars to go buy this box uh, in order to scale up my audio conferencing capacity. And I'm sitting next to Evan, and he's like, yeah, you don't need to do that anymore. I'm like, that is amazing, right? Because they had figured out how to do it all on AWS and do it in the cloud. So you got it immediately. so well, I was sold just right, right, right there. Right. Um, but then, yeah, I, and it took a while for us to kind of connect a few times, and then I ultimately ended up participating in Twilio's round. Um, Did you have any view on portfolio construction at the time, and mm-hmm. how to manage a portfolio of companies, or it, it, it was, it was more just, hey, I'm going to get into market and find the smartest people and try to back them and just get into these rounds. So I actually took an approach that I would say was was very different than most angels, that where I went and spoke to several LPs before I started investing. Um, And I asked them, what do you look for in the funds that you invest in? And I would literally walk into the room and I would tell them, look, I'm not here to ask you for money because I know I'm not ready for it. Right. But I want you to tell me what you look for so hmm. that I can build towards it. And what types of LPs were they? These were areas? institutional LPs, okay. like family offices yep. um, and going in and talking to them about yep. raising capital. And this was maybe around the time you raised your first fund and you're That's just right. saying, hey, what do I need to do over the next couple yes. of years for this to yeah. be a real conversation? And I got some really good tidbits out of doing that. Hmm. Like One was uh, several LPs told me that they don't give you credit for investing your own capital. You hmm. have to be managing other people's money. Because hmm. that's the signal that kind of tells you that you can do it responsibly and professionally, hmm. right? Um, that was a key insight for me because it basically told me, okay, so just taking my own money and going and investing that uh, in random companies, that's not going to help me raise a fund in the future. Hmm. And so I took a very concerted approach towards I want to bring in other people even into the first fund so that I'm managing yeah. other people's money. And I want to show what a portfolio would actually look like. And um, I also, like again, in terms of portfolio construction, I did the research to figure out that you need a certain number of companies in the portfolio in order for for you to get the right um, right statistics in the portfolio. Right? Yep. That a portfolio of ten companies is probably too small, and a portfolio of thirty companies in a fund is probably too big for a single person to handle. Hmm. And so I kind of decided that my magic number is between 15 to 20 companies per fund. And I'm still sticking true to that number. Hmm. So I'm curious, as you began to start managing other people's mm-hmm. money outside of your own, mm-hmm. how you think that maybe affected some of the investments that you were making, if at all, or, or maybe what you learned from that in the early days? I don't think it actually changed the types of companies I would be investing in. 
I, I think some of the um, uh, the impact of it was more around just kind of the tracking, the back office, and mm-hmm. the accounting, and a lot right. of a lot of that type of stuff was like I had to produce a quarterly report. Yeah, now I had to go do the work for that. And in fact, at that time, like the fund is too small for me to go hire somebody to do it, so I was doing it all myself. Like the accounting too? Yeah, the accounting wow. and the back wow. office and wow. producing the capital account right. statements and everything. So, wow. yeah. Wow. Um, and that was a great learning experience. Yeah. Like I I know, like I, I know the LPA pretty closely as a result of it. Mm-hmm. And I understand some of the back office stuff much better as a result of it. So, so fast forward a couple mm-hmm. years, how long did it take you between that first kind of friends and family fund mm-hmm. to... I guess K92. Yeah. So so K91 was started in April 2009 and ran through till um 2012. So it was a 3-year cycle. Yep. Uh the second fund um I started in 2012 and uh that one uh was a 40 million dollar fund and institutionally backed. Yep. And did you go to a lot of those same people that you were having conversations around what you needed to do to exactly yeah right yeah. okay I mean so a hundred percent of my fund did won. they all say yes no okay <laughs> they did not <laughs> and you're like I so, did all the things yes. that you said I was to do <laughs> no a hundred percent of the fund one LPs are in fund two and, okay. and in fund three uh, but for fund two I had to go knock on a lot of doors and talk to a lot of people um, and uh, yeah it was not an easy fundraise it probably took me almost about uh, 12 to 18 months in order to raise uh, to raise the 40 million dollar fund were, what were the main sticking points for for some of those folks I think a lot of the st- uh, uh, well one category of sticking points was it's a solo gp fund yep right and um i i reasonably quickly figured out that I needed to ask that question up front, that are you going to invest in a solo GP fund? Because and just 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 explain to us a little bit why why you think it is that LPs have so much trouble uh investing in solo GP funds, especially given some of the things that you just mentioned yeah. around, you know, Mike Maples and Steve Anderson and mm-hmm. Michael Deering and all these folks that you know, are kind of legendary right. seed investors now as and started as solo GPs. Um, well, I think they paved the way for me to be able to, okay. to do it. So, okay. so if they hadn't done it, uh, it would be even hmm. harder for me to kind of do this. Um, but I think most LPs um, kind of they're they're looking for a team. They want checks and balances within the team so that you're not like just randomly going off and investing in something that at least you have a partnership that can help you decide mm-hmm. whether it's the right investment to do or not. Um, but my counter argument to LPs was that most partnerships are dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Um, most of them, uh, well, not most of them, but a lot of them end up uh, having a lot of quid pro quo where I get to do my deal, you get to do your deal. Right. And so, uh, and then it also comes with the risk of like partnership dynamics, right? And so my go-to line with all the LPs was, hey, the risk of me getting hit by a bus is less than the risk of me having a a blow up with a potential partner, Hmm. right? So just statistically speaking, that's Hmm. the, that's, (laughs) right. Did you consider partners? 
I, I did mean, did consider, you at some point, you know, you get, you're getting all this feedback from yeah. folks saying you really should build a team. Did you? Yeah, I did consider partners, but again, like some of the early LP feedback I got even in fund one, um, at, during fund one was that you don't get credit for just coming together as partners, uh, yesterday. Right. right. You have to have known the people and worked with them for a long, long time. Um, and so I figured the only way that I can actually find somebody to partner with is by co-investing with them and getting to know people. So, so during fund one, I was fairly open to the prospect that in fund two, I may end up adding a partner. Um, but by the time I got around to fund two, I'm like, this is working. I am mm. comfortable with how it's working and I don't want to take the risk of it blowing up. So it can be kind of, I mean, my, I, I would imagine it can be kind of lonely as a solo GP sometimes. Are there ways in which you can address that? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Without necessarily having a partner? Like, are there other people that you feel like good days and bad days you mm-hmm. can kind of go to as a, as yeah. a solo GP? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it can definitely get lonely. That's part of the reason why uh, in my office, it's not just me. I actually right. have my portfolio companies. Uh, some of my portfolio companies are in the same space. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of the reason behind that is otherwise it would just be me, me in an office. That would be incredibly lonely. Right. Uh, but also that when I, when you think about um, like working with, um, with people on a deal by deal basis, Right. So uh, like if I'm looking at a company in a particular space, um, I'm typically going to reach out to other people who whose opinion I respect in that space. Yeah. And so I'm still getting feedback from others um, on every deal that I'm looking at. But but I'm making the final call on whether, like, should I do this investment or not? So you were an early investor. I want to talk about fun, too, a little mm-hmm. bit more. But you were an early investor in some amazing companies, Twilio, Carta, Lyft. Mm-hmm. I mean, some incredible mm-hmm. companies. Congrats. Thank um, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, on the flip side, I'm just curious, as you were investing Fund One, mm-hmm. and maybe before you knew just how mm-hmm. big those companies were going to be, mm-hmm. like what were some of the key lessons that you learned mm-hmm. as you were in the early years of, of K9 um, as an investor? Because I'm sure you made maybe a mistake or two. Oh yes, made, made okay. plenty of mistakes. All right, good. Uh, made plenty of mistakes, and in fact, um, my my miss list is as impressive as my as my well, probably more impressive than sure. my win list. But uh, I mean, one of the key lessons that I learned was uh, if you kind of pick people on the spectrum of in, like hardcore engineers, incredible salespeople, and incredible designers, so kind of that triangle, right? That um, you typically don't want people who are on the vertices of that triangle. Hmm. You want people who are a little bit closer to the middle of that triangle, at least for as, the, a, founder. as a founding team. Yep. Right. And if anything, I would bias a little bit closer to the engineering side because you can take great engineers and you can you can build stuff around them. So my part of my thesis is that I invest in technical founders. That's that's the part of the thesis. So yeah. So now you're managing a $40 million fund, mm-hmm. solo GP. How does that change the strategy compared to the you know $6 million so fund originally? What I found in fund one was that even though I was writing a 50K, 100K check, my style and just my personal preference of engaging with a company uh, is one of that I want to be actively engaged. Um, and what I realized as part of fund one is that my check size was too small 
to justify that level of of time commitment and engagement, hmm. right? And so with fund two and and continuing into fund three as well, the strategy remains the same, is that I want to actually lead the initial round of financing, which we now call pre-seed, right? Yes, so, which I'll, um, I'll bug you about yes, in a minute. Uh, <laughs> so I want to lead that pre-seed round. I want to be the lead investor. Uh, I want to help the companies actively. Um, and... Um, and almost kind of like I think of myself less as a company picker and more as a company builder. So I mm-hmm. want to get in there with the founders and help them build the company in the early stages. And what does so, that actually look like day to day? Like um, you mentioned, you have a few companies in your office. Yeah, I mean, I have like about six companies in my office right now. Uh, I mean, our conversations on a daily basis can range from um, recruiting to product to pricing to business model to fundraising to PR, to marketing, um, pre- like to finding office space, um, yep. like pretty much everything. Like I'm, I tell the founders, like just come and ask me. Like if I if I know it, I will help. If I don't know it, I'll try and point you to somebody who might be able to help yep. you. So, and and same similar number of por- portfolio, similar companies. number of portfolio so, companies, which is right. fifteen to twenty, fifteen to twenty, per which fund. feels yeah. to me, it feels a little. I get a little nervous. <laughs> Does it feel too low? Or does it feel? It feels a little low. Too low. Yeah. Yes, I mean, yes. we trend. Yeah. I mean, we invest very early. Right. Like you, uh, primarily on yeah. the East Coast. Yeah. Relatively concentrated yeah. portfolio, yeah. but fifteen feels really concentrated. So I'm, I'm curious how I'm curious how you've gotten to that number. Aside from, I understand time constraints. Mm-hmm. You're one person. I've correct. We have we're two partners, myself yeah. and a partner. Yeah. But putting time constraints aside, just from a purely mm-hmm. portfolio construction perspective, mm-hmm. how do you get to that number? And are you ever a little nervous by it? I am a little nervous by okay. it, right? Because so um, if I end up having uh, a couple of, or more than a couple of companies that end up not working out in a fund, then I don't have that many companies left in the portfolio right. to like, right. oh, that one of these is going to be an right. outlier and actually make the fund. So I do get worried about that. Um, but I think of about it as, one, it's a time constraint issue, as you pointed out. And second, um, my what I would like to try and do is align myself with the founders so that um, I am motivated for them to succeed, mm-hmm. right? And And I feel like a concentrated approach does that better, right? Like mm-hmm. I have more skin in the game. Like, yeah. like if a company is going to fail... It's gonna hurt, yeah, right. And I feel that hurt, and I yep. feel feel the pain from a company going down. And I'm gonna try hard to 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 make it work. Um, so I think that's just part of my. I, I I think I would go back to that's part of my DNA for. Like, I want active engagement. I I get emotionally involved with the companies. Yeah, Pro- probably more than I should. Right, so. right. <laughs> so. And so you raise fund three. Mm-hmm. It's similar fund. Similar fund size, size, 42 million very same as strategy. opposed to 40, yeah. yeah. Um, similar LP base. Yeah, similar LP base um, as well. How do you think about, um, so the first check, mm-hmm. uh, you're typically the first lead investor. Mm-hmm. What do those rounds look like? So typically I'm investing between four hundred to 600,000. Yep. And as just the initial, like, and... In some cases, I might be doing 100% of that pre-seed round. In some cases, I might be doing 50% of that pre-seed round. So, Do you have an initial 
ownership target? Um, I typically try to be in double digits. Yep. And then how much do you reserve? Uh, quite a bit. I okay. will go as much as um, three to four million into a company out of a forty million dollar fund. With an initial check being four or five hundred. With an initial check being four to five hundred k. Okay. So there's lots of different views on yes. reserves and yeah. follow on and and we tend to lean mm-hmm. towards trying to invest you know as much capital as soon as we can. That's right. Yeah. So. I'm curious how you think if you have like $5 million reserve mm-hmm. behind a 500K initial check, mm-hmm. do you just do your pro rata over time? Or do you try to like, if you begin to see it starting taking off, are you more aggressive? Do you try to do super pro rata? And I'm curious how you, I'm curious to just understand a little bit of the framework and thought mm-hmm. process in terms of how you make you know, follow-on investment decisions compared to the initial so, decision. So my MO has ended up being that um, I will typically lead the pre-seed. Um, for the seed round, I tell the founders that I would like to do super pro rata. Okay, uh, you do. Um, but I don't. You're not writing it into docs. I'm not docs, writing right? it into okay. docs. I tell them, look, I want to do super pro rata in the seed round, uh, but you have to feel that I've earned it. Okay. Right? So the founders have to uh, feel like that I've earned the right to get super prorata in the seed round. Yep. Uh, in the Series A, I will typically do uh, full prorata. Uh, in the Series B, I may end up scaling back uh, because I'm then out of reserves uh, by that point. Yep. I have considered the the option of uh, kind of doing uh, SPVs or an opportunity fund type thing for some companies, but I've so far I have not pulled the trigger on anything like that. Yeah. I'm curious how you how you manage some of those pro rata conversations, particularly in uh, a funding environment that's very competitive. So if the company's doing well, you know, not only is it hard to do your super pro rata because you know some Series A firm comes in, they need twenty percent, et cetera, et cetera. How do you even maintain your pro rata in that I environment? Have those conversations all the time, right? Um, uh, they're not fun, right? Uh, not fun in the sense that typically the some sometimes the later stage folks are trying to um, push the early stage folks. Yes, yeah, of course. Um, so I guess put it just, politely. Yeah, <laughs> just so just so the folks that are listening to the podcast understand, you know, more often than not now, what we see and I imagine yeah. you see it in spades is a much 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 bigger fund mm-hmm. has very stringent ownership targets, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a very well respected fund. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily bad actors, mm-hmm. but they just, you know, they have their 20% target. Mm-hmm. The funding round is 20%. And so any additional pro rata mm-hmm. or 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 investment is effectively additional dilution Correct. to a founder. So right. it could it could end up being, I mean, we've seen some rounds that end up being 25, 30% right. dilution. Mm-hmm. And so often founders go to their early investors and ask them to waive their pro rata. And so what do you then say to them? <laughs> um, I say to them exactly what I said to them at the time of doing the initial investment. If you think I've earned it, then then do right by me. I also look at it as like, hey, if, if it's a later stage firm that's going to come and um, kind of use uh, um, harsh elbows or uh, with early stage investors, like I keep track of that. 
Right. I know. I know which funds are trying trying to uh, tr- trying to not do right by me, and then I will keep track of that. And chances are that they will. They may not see some companies from me in the future. Yeah. And so I kind of like. I look at it as that I'm playing the long game. Um, this is. It's not about one deal here or there. Um, I'm going to be in this business for 30 plus years, and um, you figure out you figure out who who plays uh, uh, who plays well. So. So I want to ask you about pre-seed. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we were raising <laughs> um, Notation's first fund, I don't know, I guess three or four years ago now, mm. we were pitching it as a pre-seed fund. And I think at the time, uh, you were the only other mm-hmm. firm we had ever seen or used that word. I have mixed thoughts on it sure. myself. <laughs> but I'm curious, especially because you started as this mm-hmm. is what you consider seed mm-hmm. investor. Mm-hmm. In 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. I'm curious um, just literally what that word kind of means sure. to you, why you started using it, and um, maybe digging into how you think about K9, particularly as a branded pre seed firm today. Um, so, what happened is that so in 2009, when I started, the seed round used to be five, anywhere between 500K to a million. Yep. That was kind of a seed round, right? And somewhere around 2013 is when I started noticing that the seed rounds are getting bigger. And so, in fact, at my LP meeting in 2013 was the first time I actually put in, like, I'm now a pre-seed fund. Hmm. And um, and a lot of my LPs were also asking, like, what does that mean? Because right. we invested yeah. in a seed fund and now you're telling us you're a pre-seed fund. Right. Right. And I had to tell them, well, look, nothing has changed with what I'm doing. Yep. What I'm doing is, is remaining exactly the same. What has changed is that the environment around me has changed where the seed round has become much bigger. The bar for the seed round has gone higher. Yep. And I don't want to fall into the trap of essentially going out and raising a bigger fund and writing a bigger check. I want to stay true to the stage at which I think I can add the most value. Uh, and so for doing that, I had to essentially say, look, I'm not doing seed rounds anymore. I'm doing hmm. something that's even before the seed round. And so I'm just going to call it pre-seed. Yep. Right. Uh, so that's kind of the origin yeah. of, of the term. Yeah. Which makes sense. Um, yeah. And, Similarly, um, why we started notation. Yeah, yes. And um, and yeah. And so today the seed round is even bigger. It's almost now yeah. two to three million for a seed yeah. round. We see $5 million. Yes. I'm sure you the, see Adam yes. YC, $7 million seed um, rounds. Yeah. And that just doesn't make any sense. So, and and a lot of the people who started their funds as seed funds, they don't want to call themselves Series A funds anymore. Yeah. Um, and so they're still keeping the seed moniker. And so I had to come up with a new moniker to describe what I'm doing. Um, and that's that was the origin of pre-seed. So. Did you find it challenging then and or now mm-hmm. to explain that to founders? Like, like was there... A challenge is founders coming into K9, mm-hmm. they're raising a seed round, mm-hmm. they're thinking they're you know, maybe raise a couple million dollars, and you say, Well, wait, wait, wait. No, you're absolutely right. It is indeed challenging. Yeah. And in fact, the I would say between 2015 to 17 was incredibly challenging in that regard. Yeah. Because agreed. founders would come in, um, and most of what founders see in terms of funding announcements are, oh, this company raised a $3 million seed round, or this company raised a $2 million seed round. And so the the perception is that's the first round of funding. Yeah. Well, the thing is that nobody really announces their pre-seed round. Like, it's uninteresting. Or their angel round. Or their angel or, round yeah, or anything yeah. like that. So none of that actually gets any airtime. 
So a lot of founders would walk in and basically think that they're going to raise $2 million right off the bat. And then I would have to sit there and basically tell them, look, like, I don't think you're ready to raise $2 million right now. And you need to go build a team and you need to build at least a prototype or a product. Um, and then you'll be ready to go out and raise $2 million. And what do you need to build the team and the product? And typically that ends up being between a half a million to a million dollars. And so there is that education process that that needs to happen. Um, but I think it's gotten better in the last yeah. year, year and a half, where now like I've actually started, like, I mean, you guys helped by saying you're a pre-seed fund. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> happy to, happy to, make and, it, uh, happy to make it a little was, easier for you. I was pleased to see that uh, there are now lots of other funds that yeah. identify as pre-seed funds as well. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for leading so. the way. You showed us the way. <laughs> and I do find that, I think you're right, I think particularly in the last year, mm -hmm. we have to do much, much less education. Right. I think I think it's finally filtered out into the founders ecosystem. And more often than not, now we have founders coming in saying, I'm raising a million dollar pre-seed or seven. I'm not, do you see the same thing out I here? I see the same thing yeah. happening now. And, and in fact, the other thing that I see happening is typically when they do the announcement for their seed round, they're now clubbing the pre-seed and the yes. seed together. Yes. Right? So the public perception is, is that the round size is even bigger. For sure. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, they'll be announcing Series Bs now that are $150 yeah. million dollars <laughs> across all the capital yeah. that they raised. I'm curious how you think about the um, the market today. Mm -hmm. um, to one of the things we were talking about before we started the podcast was commercial rents in Palo Alto are... Mm -hmm. The highest in the world or the US? At uh, least. I, I think at least in the US okay. is what I've heard. Um, yeah. And so. uh, tons of, I mean, tons of uh, small firms, pre seed firms, seed mm -hmm, firms, mm -hmm. big firms that are doing pre seed mm -hmm. checks. I mean, and it's a competitive environment. Right. In almost every regard sure. yeah. for talent, for, you know, for capital. How do you think about? competing in the same way mm -hmm. today as you did when you were first starting out when there was, you know, five seed firms? I think the first there's way, like, like you and I can sit here and talk about like how there's so much capital coming into the, the ecosystem. You look at all the macro trends and there's like hundreds of billions of dollars coming yeah. into venture. None of that makes the process of fundraising any easier for a startup. It's true. Right. And for any company that's trying to raise capital, it is still uh, a difficult process and it takes a lot of effort for them in yeah. most cases. Right. So, so I want to kind of acknowledge that that's first true. before even 100%. talking about like how there's so much competition amongst VCs 100%. and all of that type of stuff. The other uh, part of my thesis is that I, I have actively decided to wipe out any fear of missing out. How do you do that? I instead look at it as if I miss on a company, Yes, I miss. I make the best decision I can with the information I have, and I cannot look back and have any regrets. Okay. And instead, if I do invest in a company. But how do you actually do that? Like, I, I, I totally understand. I totally understand what you're saying. <laughs> and in my I, head, I try to say the same thing to myself, but. Do you actually like how have you how have you figured out how to actually feel I am, that? I am trying to rationalize it to myself. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you're not a hundred percent feeling that inside. Yes. Okay. So got it. I have to actively work on convincing right. myself for right. that. But um but what the the flip of it is once I invest in a company, I have to try my damnedest to make sure that that company becomes successful. Right. 
Um, so that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Yeah. And when I think about competition, so for example, I don't do exploding term sheets. Right. And I feel that anybody who's writing an exploding term sheet is effectively sending the wrong message to founders. Right. Is that common in the market here? It's very common. Is that right? Yes. It's very common. Okay. Especially I feel at like the, less so in the East Coast. At the seed or series A, really? series B stages. An exploding term sheet meaning here's a term sheet you have to sign by what? The end here's of the day. Here's a term sheet you have till five PM on Friday in okay. order to sign, right? And, and that's common. Today's Thursday, right? So, <laughs> so if you do find out the yeah. founders going around town, I've yeah. got a term sheet from K9, yeah. you know, you still you still honor it? I so I still will not I will not do an exploding term sheet. And yep. I tell founders up front that look, I once I choose that I want to work with you, you have to make the equivalent choice on your side that you want to work with me. Right. You can take as long as you want to kind of figure out that decision within a reasonable time period. Like, okay. of course, like if you're going to take three months, that's probably too late. But yeah. we're talking weeks yeah. and stuff over here. Yeah. Um, and so go do your homework, talk to other founders in my portfolio, see what they have to say about working with me, and then you make your decision. Yep. And there's signal in their decision for me. Hmm. Right? Like if they decide, if they decide to go take a higher offer from somebody else. There's signal in that for me, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm like, great, it wasn't meant to be. That's okay. Uh, there's there's other companies that I can work with. Yep. Um, and I will just choose to work with, with those companies. So my pace of investing is about two to four new investments in a year. Um, so I think this year I've only done, uh, actually this year I've only done one new investment so wow. far. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so that that's a stark contrast to what you see yes. to many other firms Correct. in the market, which yeah. are doing, you know, they have yeah. five, ten partners, I mean, they're doing This has implications deals. even like when you, so if you take it up to the level of LPs, there's, there's implications over there as well, right? So I raise my funds on a five-year investing period. Yep. Right. So the, the the median right now is probably around two to three years, yep. right? So I'm doing a five-year fund. I've told all my LPs up front that, look, I'm going to invest at a very measured pace mm-hmm. and they have to be comfortable with that. Right. So, so it, are it, they, um, they are like all, like I have never gotten, and none of my LPs, at least so far, none of them has, have pushed me on okay. like on deal pace. Okay. Like, and I'm, pro- I proactively tell them what's on my mind in terms of deal pace, mm-hmm. how I'm thinking about it. Uh, and I also tell them that, look, in case there's a downturn in the market, chances are my deal pace will go up. Yep. Right. And so my capital calls will, will probably come a lot faster hmm. in case there's a That's correction. That's interesting. Just because you think there'll be less capital, less competition. Yeah, I mean, some of the right. best investments I made were in 2009. Right. 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 So that's then that the the overall market does have an impact on what deals you're able to get into. Yeah. So, yeah. Do you? I sometimes think about, um, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it, mm-hmm. but I occasionally think about. The LP fundraising cycles because mm-hmm. they seem to be getting quicker. Yes, like I, they just, are. I, yeah. Anecdotally, yeah. I feel like a lot of the institutional LPs, particularly fund to funds that are raising funds, um, are raising probably every two to three years mm-hmm. rather than four to five. I believe for some of my fund to fund LPs, I'm in one fund, then I skip the next fund, right. and I'm in the third fund or right. something like that. So yes, do you? Yes. I, does that so, have an implication for your for your fundraising cycles? Um, I really don't know the so, answer to that. So far, no. Okay. I'm hoping it does not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts on the current market? I mean, do you think do you think we're gonna see a downturn soon? 
I I don't know. I've yeah. I've stopped trying to predict yeah. anything at this yeah. point. So. Yeah. <laughs> As you do think out 30 years. Mm-hmm. Could you ever imagine adding a partner? Do you feel like you've found what works and you're going to stick to that and it's going to be, you know, five-year cycles and we'll be talking about canine six, 30 years from now? And so, well, the 30-year cycle started for me in 2009. Okay. So I... Okay, uh, so, so 20 so, years. Yeah, so okay, in 2009, so I kind of like, I like, okay, I'm going to do this for 30 years okay. at a minimum, right? Yep. So I think I I like how things are working right now. Uh, it's unlikely that I would add partners. Um, I would like to continue doing the type of investing that I'm doing and continue to have the type of engagement that I have with companies. Uh, the the variables that are outside of my control are really just what happens around market dynamics, right? So it is possible that I may have to to adjust to market dynamics, yep. but so far the model is working and, and I'm just going to keep kind of watching it and going from there. So. Thank you so much for taking the time. You've seriously been a you've been an inspiration to Notation since the beginning. So I'm so so glad we could well, do this and thank, wishing yeah. you all the best. Thank you for inviting me. No, this was a lot of fun and and good to good to finally sit down and chat. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glaway, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.